since I didn't preach last week, it's been two Sundays since we were in John's Gospel. And as most of you know, we've been studying this Gospel for the last few years now, and we are very near the end. We're in chapter 21, looking at the passage that I just read for you. John chapter 21, verses 18 through 23. And by way of review, because it's important for us to understand the passage today properly, when Jesus says in verse 18 to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and you used to walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. When Jesus said that to Peter, John is able to see or to hear in that statement a reference to a specific mode of death. And it is for that reason that John adds the editorial comment in verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, how it is that John inferred something about Peter's death in that statement is not immediately apparent to us as English speakers. But apparently, as I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago, the phrase, stretch out your hands, was idiomatic in ancient Israel for death by crucifixion. Something like how the phrase, ride the lightning, is idiomatic for death by the electric chair in our modern world. And so if a non-English speaker was reading an English text that said somebody rode the lightning, they would be quite inclined to take that literally and wonder about the nonsensical picture that that would conjure up in their mind. But as a native English speaker, if you're familiar with that idiom, and you hear that someone rode the lightning, you understand that they died by electric chair. And so it is that, strictly speaking, stretching out your hands literally just means stretching out your hands. But apparently for the ancient Jews, it would have been quite apparent that Jesus was predicting that Peter would die by crucifixion. It would have sounded in Peter's ears and in John's ears something, the way, something like the way it would sound if Jesus said to a modern man, they're going to lock you up and make you ride the lightning. Now, understandably, this would have been somewhat disconcerting to Peter. As we saw two Sundays ago, it's part of Jesus' strategy to make sure that Peter counts the cost as he here recommits himself to Jesus and as he recommits himself to the apostolic task. You will recall elsewhere earlier in his public ministry where Jesus said, which of you if he's going to build something, doesn't first sit down and make a budget. How much is it going to cost to undertake this project? And what fool would begin a building project without first having counted the cost? And he compares that to following him. So here, it's part of his strategy to make sure that Peter counts the cost. That he tells Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion. And we also saw that in a roundabout way, Jesus is actually encouraging Peter by making this prediction. Because Jesus is predicting 
that Peter will be faithful to Jesus when push comes to shove later on in his life. You remember when Peter had boasted earlier, even if they all desert you, I never will. I will follow you even unto death. And Jesus said to him, a prediction. Truly, this very night, you will deny me three times. And so as Jesus predicted Peter's unfaithfulness, and Peter saw Jesus' prediction come true, now Jesus predicts Peter's faithfulness, which would have been an encouragement in a roundabout way to Peter, that he's going to make it, and he's going to stay the course, even when things get hard later on in his life. So there are benevolent reasons why Jesus told Peter that he was going to have to die by crucifixion. But nevertheless, it would have been somewhat disconcerting to Peter, and understandably so. Just as if Jesus told you now, today, you're going to die by lethal injection, or the electric chair, or whatever. Even if there were benevolent reasons why God might reveal that to you, nevertheless, I'm sure it would cause you a measure of consternation. So we can empathize with Peter. We can relate to him here. And it is out of this this discomfort that Peter turns around and notices John. And he says, what about this man? Focusing on what God's plan for others is, or might be, when we ourselves are faced with difficulty, is a common but flawed human reaction to difficulty. Jesus says implicitly to you, working through the workings of providence in your life, perhaps follow me through cancer, or follow me through financial destitution, or follow me through the public rectification of a public sin, follow me through persecution or whatever else. At some point we hear as it were in the providences of God through the providences of God in our lives the voice of Jesus calling to us follow me through this. Whatever difficult thing it might be. The imperative is clear and unmistakable in such occasions. Follow me. Whatever difficult circumstance it is that Jesus is leading you into and through, the imperative, follow me, has never changed. So now it's not follow me in shady green pastures so rich and so sweet. Now it's perhaps through the waters, through the flood. So we raise an objection of sorts based on what God's plan is for other people. What about him? What about her? Underneath those questions are questions like this. Why didn't they have to go bankrupt? Why didn't she have to get sick? Why wasn't his sin dealt with this way? Why didn't she get persecuted like this? Why did they all get to stay home instead of being deployed to this difficult mission field? 
Why do I have to do this or that when no one else is doing this or that? Or at least most people aren't. Why was I one that has to do this? When, what about him? What about her? The assumption when we think or talk like this is that if other people don't have to do something, then I shouldn't have to do something either. If you have kids or have spent a lot of time around them, you know that this is a favorite objection, favorite methodology. But what does he have to do? Never mind what he has to do. This is what I told you to do. But what about her? We want to excuse ourselves from following Jesus in the way that we have been providentially required to do on the basis of what others have been providentially required to do or perhaps what others have not been providentially required to do. If God's providence in our lives is different than God's providence in someone else's lives, we balk at that and we object. What about him? What about her? This response is common. But it is nevertheless flawed. After all, using Paul's reasoning from Romans chapter 9 and verse 21, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for one particular use and another vessel for an entirely different use altogether? Is that not the potter's right? In other words, has God, does not God have the right over you to use your life as He pleases and to unfold to you providence, whatever providence He ordains, whatever providence He wishes? To unfold providence to you in whatever specific ways he so desires. Is that not God's prerogative? To state this more explicitly. If God made you, and I'm not talking y'all, I'm talking about you as an individual. Each and every one of you. Listen to me as an individual right now. In the first person. I, me, listen to me. I'm talking to you, each and every one of you. If God made you and only you for purpose A, God has every right to command you to fulfill your unique and specific purpose A. Even if every other person in the world and in human history had been made for purpose B. Is that not God's prerogative to tell you what you must do, irrespective of what anyone else is doing or has been called to do? The question of what God's plan for other people might be then is therefore irrelevant to what God's plan and purpose for you is. 
More on this in a moment, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me back up and draw your attention back to the text. To see that Jesus himself points out to Peter that it is irrelevant to Peter what his plan for John is. Jesus says in verse 22, look back at John 21. Jesus says in verse 22, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Jesus is making the point that I made to you a moment ago, which is that he has every right to require Peter to do something, even if he does not require John to do the same thing. Jesus does not entertain Peter's objection and explain to Peter what will happen to John. Nor does Jesus rationalize why it might be reasonable for him to make Peter walk a different path than John. Jesus just says, what is that to you? Thereby forcing Peter to confront the total irrelevance of that consideration altogether. He turns it back on Peter. What That has nothing to do with this, Peter. What is that to you? You follow me. Whatever may or may not be required of John has literally nothing to do with Peter's responsibility to follow Jesus. And if we circle back around now to what I had begun saying to you a minute ago, the consideration of what God's plan is for other people or what, that, what God's plan for other people might be is irrelevant to your responsibility to follow Jesus. What is it to you? What providence God has unfolded in someone else's life? I repeat the same sort of questions I raised earlier in the sermon. Why didn't his business have to fail? Why didn't she have to get fired from her job? Why didn't his church exercise discipline like I am undergoing? Why didn't she have to experience rejection by friends on account of the gospel that I am experiencing? Why do they get to enjoy the American dream or the Bajan dream? Well, I am suffering for Christ in a foreign land. Why do I have to do this or that when no one else is doing it? Listen to me carefully here. What is that to you? It is irrelevant to you what God's plan for other people is. Or might be. The imperative stands, follow me. God may indeed call you to crucifixion, so to speak, and permit another of your peers to grow old, as was the case with Peter and John. God may indeed call you to pancreatic cancer and permit your peers to live a long and healthy life. God may indeed call you to leave your homeland to serve Him in a foreign country while everyone else gets to stay home in their comfort zone. God may indeed call you 
to handle your sin in a godly way and providentially place you in circumstances where you cannot shirk accountability and responsibility. Well, he does not hedge another one in in the same way. And they seem to get away with it. But what is that to you? You must follow Jesus. The path that providence unfolds before us. Providence is just another way of saying what God provides. Which is everything. The easy and the hard. The good and the bad. The smooth and the rough. What God provides is His providence. Or His providence. It's our way of talking about how God unfolds the events and circumstances and happenings of your life to you. The path that providence unfolds before us will vary from person to person. Even within your own family, in your own marriage, there will be variation. Imagine, for example, if one spouse is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. On the one hand, the married couple will face it together. They got, it's something that happened to them both and they got to go through it. But on the other hand, his path to walk is to suffer from Alzheimer's and her path to walk is to care for somebody suffering from Alzheimer's. You can see how that's different. Likewise, when one spouse sins against another, her path is repentance. And his path is forgiveness. So again, perhaps they go through the same sin together. But they experience it in different ways. One as the offender and one as the offendee. Our experiences of the very same events are different from the way that other people experience those same events. Nobody has all of the same identical events all the way through. And so God's providence for you is different than God's providence for me. God's providence for your spouse is different than God's providence for you. God's providence for your best friend is different than God's providence for you. There is no relationship where God's providence for you and another person is exactly the same. question of a marriage in which one person sins and another person the married couple goes through the sin together but one is the sinner and one is the sinned against this question points us in an important direction that we ought to explore as part of applying this message to our lives What if two people are called to the same duty, but one person defaults on the duty and does not do what they ought to do? This is slightly different than is the case with Peter and John here, and I'll expand on that a little bit in a moment. For example, if one spouse gets terminally ill and must follow Jesus through that difficult providence, and the other spouse just abandons her, What then? Or vice versa. What if the caregiver must follow Jesus 
through caring for a terminally ill spouse. But the sick spouse adopts a very ungodly, bitter, and aggressive disposition instead of being grateful for the care, thereby failing to follow Jesus as she ought. Or where two people are called to exactly the same thing. Maybe two co-workers that face the same ethical dilemma. Two professing Christians that work together. And one does the wrong thing. And sins. What then? Well, though we can all understand that such a situation, any of the above that I just described, would be tremendously difficult, and it would be hard in a situation like that to follow Jesus irrespective of what the other person does, we should all be able to agree that nevertheless the same principle still applies, even in a situation like that. What is that to you? You follow Jesus. The principle here still applies, though the circumstances are not the same as the question that was raised by Peter concerning John, which is what Jesus is directly addressing in John 21. Whether it is a situation caused simply by God's varying providence, in ordering the world and causing events to fall out in different ways before different people, or whether it is a situation caused more directly by another person's disobedience to what God has clearly called them to do. The principle here is still nevertheless applicable in both of those cases. What is that to you? You follow me. The reason that this is likewise applicable, even if it's not just a matter of God's differing providence in calling one person to this and calling one person to that, the reason that it's still applicable, even if God has called you and someone else to the same thing and he doesn't do it or she doesn't do it, the reason that it's still applicable, what is that to you? You follow me. is because the command, follow me, is rooted in Christ's absolute authority over you. If Jesus is the risen King, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, more than that, if Jesus is the Word, through whom all things have been made, if He is the potter and you are the clay, if He is the King with all authority, then He has absolute authority to do with your life and in your life and through your life whatsoever He pleases. And He has the authority to say to you, you follow Me, irrespective of what I have called other people to and irrespective of whether or not they obey the call. In both cases, The imperative stands. You follow me. So whether you recognize that you have been called to follow Jesus through circumstance A, 
Well, everybody else seems to have been called to follow Jesus through circumstance B. Or whether you and another person have both been called to duty X, but the other person does not do it. In either case, what other people have been called to do, or what they do or don't do in response to the call that they have been given, it is irrelevant to you. You have been called to follow Jesus through the circumstances that He has providentially ordained for you. And you have been called to follow Him in the fulfillment of all of the duties that He has laid upon you in His Word. Irrespective of what other people have been providentially called to through God's providence in their lives. And irrespective of whether or not they obey the Word. If Jesus has called you to follow Him, then whatever circumstances come up in your life, and whatever people around you do about following Jesus, your question ought never to be, Lord, what about Him? Lord, what about her? What about those people? What about, what about them? What is that to you? You follow Jesus. Let's consider one more point of application before coming to a conclusion. And I would like to raise this point of application in the form of a question. So right now, if you're like, okay, I've got to follow Jesus through any and every circumstance irrespective of what the people around me are doing. Here's the question. What is sufficient motivation and strength to be able to do this? So if you, if you come to the point where it's like, yes, Lord, now you've got to ask how. Some of you, and it's more likely that some of you than others, may have heard of a song by the Hollies from 1969 called... He ain't heavy. He's my brother. Well, the backstory comes from an anecdotal retelling of a cute but powerful statement made by a little girl who was visibly struggling to carry her little brother on her back. And someone asked her if he wasn't too heavy for her, if she needed help. And she said, no, he's not heavy. He's my brother. Love can really motivate us, can it? Love can make things that would otherwise be heavy seem lighter. Many stories have been told of daring, heroic rescues in which one person risks their life for a child or a spouse or a friend. Why do they do it? For love. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. John chapter 15 and verse 13. Christian brothers and sisters, hasn't Jesus been a friend to you? 
He has loved you unto death. Do you love Him for it? Do you love Jesus because He first loved you? Do you really love Jesus? Jesus prompted Peter to consider his love for Jesus three times in this chapter. And quote, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. End quote. John chapter 21, verse 19. Here is the point of application that I am making. Love for Christ will be enough motivation and strength to follow Jesus as He has called us to do. There is a sense, of course, in which following Jesus through hard providences will be hard. There is a sense in which it will be difficult. Following Jesus is not always easy. We recognize that sometimes we are not in shady green pastures, but perhaps passing through the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes it is very difficult to follow Jesus. But there is another sense, if you really love Jesus, in which you know that it is true what the Apostle says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, that His commands are not burdensome. They ain't heavy. He's my Savior. Only to the degree that your love is weak and apathetic toward Jesus will you find His command, follow me. Only wearisome and heavy. Without a commensurate lightness that is present in our lives by virtue of the great love that we have for Christ Jesus because He has first loved us and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us causing us to delight in God's law in our innermost being causing us to want to follow Jesus in the midst of the difficulty Thinking on this is surely an indictment to many of us. Since many of us, myself included, do find following Jesus to be wearisome and heavy at times. Oh, what lack of love for Christ is shown to be in our hearts when our hearts get like this. What is the way forward? Well, we must first recognize Christ's absolute authority over us. Again, as the Word through whom all things were made, and without whom nothing was made that was made. He is the potter and we are the clay. And as the risen King who has received all authority in heaven and on earth, He has every right to command us as He pleases We must sing then, as we will in a moment, whatever my God ordains is right. 
whatever God unfolds to me in His providence is right. And then we must cultivate sufficient love within our hearts to take content what He hath said. To be still whate'er He doth. For those of you who didn't grow up in the 1600s, that means whatever He does. (laughs) And to follow where He guideth. We must cultivate that love for Christ that acknowledges His authority, trusts enough to take contentedly whatever He says, to be still whatever He does, and motivates us to follow wherever He guides. We love because He first loved us. There's a statement that the Apostle John makes which, which can be taken in two senses. One is that we, we never would have loved Him if He had not loved us first. Which we'll talk about more in a few minutes when we prepare our hearts to eat and drink with Christ at His table. But the other sense in which the statement, we love because He first loved us, may be taken, is that psychologically, Christ's love produces in us Christ's love for us produces in us a reciprocal love for Him. Do you find your love for Christ cool and anemic this morning? And consider His love for you. Consider the friend that He has been to you in laying down His life for you. What a friend Jesus is. In the wake of the cross, can you not now trust Him and follow Him wherever He guides you? In the wake of the cross, can you not now be sure that He will never leave you nor desert you? That when you pass through the waters, through the fire, you will not be consumed and He will be with you. That He never will deceive you, but He will lead you by the proper path. When we think clearly about Jesus and His love for us, meditating on Him until our hearts are warmed with affection for Jesus, and we will come to experience something of that same effect in following Jesus, which that little girl felt, carrying her brother whom she loved. She said, He's not heaven. He's my brother. And we will be able to say with John the Apostle as we grow in Christian maturity and our love for Christ increases. Following Jesus isn't a heavy burden. He's my Savior. So in summary, it is irrelevant to you what other people are called to do in following Jesus. And whether or not they obey the call. You must follow Jesus. We will find the strength to do this only in a genuine love for Jesus, which may be cultivated by considering His great love for us. When we are thinking clearly and our love for Jesus is strong, 
we will be able to sing whatever my God ordains is right. And we will be able to follow where He guideth. Though we may not yet be such people who contentedly accept God's providence and follow Jesus faithfully in it. Let us sing that song in response, prayerfully, asking God to work this sort of disposition in us. Whatever my God ordains is right.